0: Today, we get to celebrate communion. Um, And it's kind of extra special because it's Easter month, all right? Uh, Definitely have the privilege of worshiping our great God in spirit and in truth because of what our Savior accomplished on the cross of Calvary. So, again, we say, To God be the glory, great things He has done. We serve a risen Savior. All all words to songs that we sing, but isn't it great when we sing words of Scripture and we worship God in that way? Uh, It's truly a blessing to be able to worship God as those who have been redeemed, okay? And so as we think about that this morning, let us... us, uh... Praise God. We talked on on Wednesday night about blessing God. And you and I have the opportunity of blessing God by our obedience, by adoring Him and worshiping Him. All right, this morning we're jumping back into 1 Peter chapter 4. We're looking at verses 7 through 11, okay? And that's not anything to do with the convenience store, 7-11. But uh, the fact is, our God is available even more often than 7-11 is available. He's available all the time, 24-7, days a week, 365 days a year. He is always available to us. But you know what that means for us? It means that we should always be available to him as well. We should be willing to serve him whenever he calls upon us to do that. And some of the th- ways we serve him are things that we do just as part of our life. It's, it's what we do because we have been redeemed. We have been born again. As we pick up our study this morning in 1 Peter chapter 4, um, we're going to come across a timely reminder for us. And as, it's, it's just like our title suggests it says, Fair warning. Okay. I don't know about you, but um, when I was growing up, there was this TV show. And I know for some of you that this TV show has made a reunion or made a, uh, has been revived on Netflix. Uh, we watched part of the first season, but didn't go after the rest of it. Um, you ever watched Lost in Space when you were growing up? Okay. Um, and there was a there was a robot on there I won't tell you what mr. Smith called the robot but anyway um, the robot had this thing warning 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 does not compute does not compute okay we as Christians need to heed the warnings that come to us in the pages of scripture uh, last week we were reminded to be like Christ we were called to Christ's likeness how that should be the the thing in our life that drives us we should want to be more and more like our Savior Jesus Christ with each passing day. And as he calls us to Christ's likeness, he told us some of the things that should not uh, be incorporated into our life. He actually gave us a list of things that we we may have practiced before we came to know Jesus as our Savior, but we shouldn't be practicing them now as those who name the name of Jesus Christ. And if you need to know what that list is, you can go back just a couple of verses and check it out. But in essence, Peter is saying to us, as children of God, as citizens of heaven, we should not live like the world lives. There should be a difference in the way we live life. Uh, And again, that was reminded of us by the Apostle Paul, uh, where he says, behold, all things have passed away, and the things in life now are becoming new. We are new creatures in Christ. We don't live the way we used to live. There's a difference because of Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished on the cross of Calvary for us. And I think that, ev- that, that difference is evident in our text. This morning, God is going to extend, or Peter is extending to us this call to Christ likeness by giving us a warning. So would you stand with me together as we read 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. It'll be up here on the screen for you. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Peter writes this, But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks Let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you so much for the reminder that we are to live like Jesus, Father, we know that in our old past we couldn 't live like jesus we weren 't equipped to do that. we were bound to sin, um, but because of jesus 's death on the cross of Calvary and your calling in our lives to become children of God, we can be different. We are different as followers of Christ. We know that costs you a great deal, and father we are we are thankful for the fact that you were willing to send your son to this earth to satisfy your just requirements of redemption. Father, we've been redeemed. We've been bought back. We've been saved. And we are thankful for that. We ask that you will bless our time together in your word this morning. Encourage us, Father, as we look a little bit at what it means to serve you. And we pray these things in our Savior's name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Don't you love illustrations? I like illustrations. I just hope that you don't remember the illustrations over the truth of God's word. Okay? As we think about this morning, this fair warning, I brought something uh, to remind us of the idea of a warning. Uh, this, this came up, in fact, last week uh, when we were talking with Rick about uh, his testimony, which he's going to share after the, the sermon this morning for membership. Um, we were talking about something. I don't know if the guys remember it. Uh, I think Mark said he wished he'd stop seeing that guy on TV. Um, you know, the guy that talks about my pillow okay? This, I, brought, I brought my pillow, and it's actually a my pillow with me this morning. Um, and my, I brought this not, not because we're going to sleep during the sermon or anything like that. Um, I was going to throw it at Paul, but he's not here this morning. But then I thought maybe if I threw it at Paul, uh, sitting in that comfy chair, he might, not, uh, he might not last through the sermon. So Paul, wake up, Okay. All right, but I brought something with me this morning, um, and and it's not so much the my pillow because you know I, I said to the guys last week you know my wife loves her my pillow, um, me I'm not so sure I mean I, we've had them for a couple of years now uh, this is a this was a, something that a friend gave us so it's not either hers nor mine um, it's just an extra one we have but my my pillow um, it just kind of goes flat in the middle of the night, and I wake up, and there's this big dent in my pillow where my head is, and I don't know that I've had a good night's sleep, contrary to what, um, uh, whatever, I can't remember his name now, even what it is, but anyway, um, what I want to bring your attention to is this thing on the pillow here. It says, don't remove. Uh, In fact, there's a picture of it up there on the screen. It says, under penalty of law, this tag not to be removed except by the consumer. I, saw, I remember seeing this first when I was just, I don't know, probably seven, eight years old. I don't know, what in the world is that saying? And you know what? I have to be honest with you. I'm not sure I understand it any more today than I did when I was seven years old. Why is this thing even on here? But anyway, it's a warning. Um, I, there's another warning that we often see in almost everyday life. Uh, the picture is there. Uh, anybody familiar with California Proposition 65? It pretty much says you can't live life. Okay, That's really what that proposition is all about because almost every product you buy says it, this product, or the contents of this product is known by the state of California to cause cancer. <sighs> I have, every time I see that, I chuckle, and I think to myself, Oh my goodness! Where do we come up with these kinds of a thing? These kinds of things—it's just crazy. Um, you find it on everything, just about. And I and I just uh, I don't understand all of those silly warnings. Okay, um, I love the memes that come up uh, if you're a certain age, and it says you drank from a water hose, you rode in the back of a pickup truck, and you did all these uh, what the world would call today crazy things, and yet we we survived. We're alive to tell it and and we're living, some of us are living longer than uh, ever before, in spite of all the warnings. But can I tell you this morning, we're going to look at a genuine warning that we need to take seriously, a warning that comes from the pages of Scripture. It's a, it's, it's a warning that Peter issues to us this morning that's very much unlike Proposition 65, or the warning on my pillow, because if they tore that off at the store, you wouldn't even know that it was missing, okay? Um, and I don't know what the penalty of law is, if, if you tear it off and you still sell the product. I, I don't know what that is. But anyway, um, I want us to look this morning at this warning in the pages of Scripture that is so beneficial for us today. Let's dig in and see if we can see what Peter's warning is all about. It's actually God's warning from the pen of the Apostle Peter. First of all, we see in verse 7 that it's a timely warning. It's a timely warning. Peter says in the text, but the end of all things is at hand. Now, when we think of the end, there are many things to think of. Some of you might already be thinking about the end of the sermon. Paul, wake up. Okay? Um, it's not that. It's not the end of the sermon. We just started, so we've got a ways to go before we get to the end of the sermon. Um, some might think it's the end of your lifetime. Well, it's not that either. Some might think it's the end. Like if we were watching this, uh, like if we had a broadcast channel other than YouTube and we had you know, paid to be like these big TVs, um, I won't mention any names, uh, you might think, well, at the end of this commercial, it's all over. Sometimes we record uh, TV shows. I haven't figured this out yet. You watch the whole TV show uh, and then it goes to a commercial break And we think, okay, they are going to get the last couple minutes of the show, right? And all they come back is show you the credits. The end is at hand, okay? Um, But when Peter's talking about the end, he's not talking about those kind of things. He's talking about the end of an age, the end of a, a dispensation, if you will. Can I tell you this? Yes, by all means, Calvary Baptist Church of Preble is a church that believes in dispensational truth. Okay, that's kind of under attack these days. A lot of people are saying uh, dispensationalism. What do you believe in that for? That's old fashioned. Well, it's biblical. That's why we believe in it. Okay, um, and and so when we think about the the fact the end of the age is at hand, we're talking really reality about the church age. You say, well, Pastor, haven't people been saying that for a long time? Yeah, and we'll get into that discussion here in a little bit. But I want you to understand first of all that this tactic. This, or, I'm sorry, this warning is not a scare tactic. It's actually a call to readiness. Okay? Peter wants his readers, and he wants you and I, to be ready. To be ready for what? Well, to be ready when the Lord comes back. Let's think, uh, this, is a, this is actually a warning that leads to hope. Okay, You and I have an amazing hope. There is great hope for that moment when the Lord comes back and first catches us up into heaven to go home to be with him in that wonderful event that we refer to. And the Bible calls, well, actually, the Bible calls it the harpazio. We call it the rapture because harpazio is Greek and rapturo is Latin. So we borrowed from the Latin phrase rapture. By all means, the rapture is a biblical truth. It's a biblical teaching. And Paul calls it when he's writing to young Timothy, the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. There's so much in the scriptures to talk about this wonderful hope that you and I have. But let me ask you a question as we get started this morning. What comes to mind, and you can just shout it out, and I'll repeat it for our viewers online. But you shout out what comes to mind when you think about the hope that you and I as Christians enjoy. What is our hope as Christians? There's plenty of them to think about, so go ahead, just start shouting them out. That's one, eternal life. Victory over sin. I've got about four or five things listed here. and we could, we could go on beyond that, but we've got two of them. What else do we have as a hope for a Christian? Being with Christ in heaven. Being with Christ in heaven. That's a promise that he made to us. Yes. Being loved, come from two different people, yeah. The love of God has been poured out in our lives, demonstrated, as Romans 5 says, through Jesus Christ. God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. No greater love has a man than he lays down his life for his friends. Yeah, here's my list here. It says the hope of salvation from sin. Before Christ died on the cross of Calvary, that, that was not a hope. Nobody had that hope because they lived under a sacrificial system where when you sinned, you made a sacrifice that covered up, glossed over your sin, if you will. It was a form of obedience to make a sacrifice, but it didn't do anything with regard to your eternal destination. Praise God for the hope that we have because God sent his son to die and to save us From our sins. By his death on the cross, we also have the hope of the restoration to the one true God, the creator of the universe. You and I have been restored. Fellowship with God was broken in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned. But when Jesus died on the cross, he restored the hope of fellowship that you and I have. We mentioned the hope of eternal life in heaven with our Savior Jesus Christ and his Father. We have the hope of the here and now deliverance from sin. You and I don't have to live in sin because of what Christ accomplished on the cross of Calvary. When he announced as he was hanging on the cross, it is finished, he was talking about the stranglehold that Satan and sin had over mankind and until that point in time was a strong and a tight stranglehold. But when Jesus died, he broke the grip of sin on mankind. To God be the glory we have the hope and in, in, in the fact that it's a living hope. Remember in chapter 1, Peter said, according to his abundant mercy, he has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away. Our hope is a living hope. It is based on the fact that Jesus Christ, who was once dead in a tomb, is now alive. He no longer suffers from the, from the wages of sin, which is death, but he is indeed alive. And it leads to an amazing inheritance this hope does. This hope is that we will all become like Jesus Christ. And that's not a pie in the sky pipe dream. That's a reality. You and I will become like Jesus Christ. Our hope, it's an abounding hope. Listen to this reminder from the Apostle Paul in Romans 15 where he writes, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's the God of hope who gives abounding hope through his Spirit who now lives inside of us those who have trusted Jesus Christ as our Savior. It's easy to see that this hope is a great hope. It's a blessed hope that we have. We sing those very words about this hope that God has given to us and poured out in our life. Let's take a look this morning about this hope that Peter is pointing us to. How can this hope help us be ready for the return of Christ? Well, I want to talk just for a few minutes about this return of Christ. You need to understand that this return of Christ is an imminent return. It's in an any moment, can happen at any time return. The rapture of the church is the very next thing on the prophetic calendar. There is nothing that needs to happen prophetically for the rapture to happen. It could happen today. In fact, we say, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Would you come today? Would you take us home to be with you for all of eternity? That's the hope. That's the prayer. That's the longing of believers today has been since Jesus ascended back into heaven and the angels descended and they asked the men of Galilee why they were standing there uh, gazing up into the sky wondering what in the world was going on as they saw their savior ascend into heaven and return to the right hand of the father and the angel said this same Jesus which you have seen go into heaven you're standing looking up in the clouds, will come in like manner into the clouds and receive you to himself that where he is, you may also be with him for all of eternity. Can I tell you this? That there are people who think that the rapture of the church is a fairy tale. There's people who think that it's not ever going to happen. There's people who think that the return of Jesus has already happened the second time. I don't know, but I can't see that as I look around our world today. I cannot see my Jesus reigning in a world like we have today. Where is the hope if Jesus is on the throne? It's not here. We're plagued by cancer and COVID. We're we're plagued by racism and hatred. and It's just running rampant in our world today. If Jesus is on the throne... I don't see it. Jesus is coming back, and before he comes back to rule on the throne, he's coming back to catch us up, to take us home, to be with him for all of eternity. We've talked before about the second advent of Christ. We, we, we know the first ad, advent, we celebrated at Christmas, right? He came as a babe in a manger, and he lived on this world, on this earth, his creation for 33 years. At the end of his life, he gave up his life, on the end of his life, he gave it up on the cross of Calvary. He was buried, he rose again, and he ascended back into heaven. That was the first advent of Jesus Christ. The Bible talks about a second advent, full of it in the Old Testament, for some reason, the the religious leaders of the Jesus' day missed the two advents, even though it was it was recorded in the pages of the Old Testament. You and I today, um, we are serving the Lord during the Church Age, and the Church Age is going to end with the Rapture of the Church. And when Jesus comes in the clouds, like he, like he left, he ascended in the clouds, he's going to come back into the clouds, the Bible says we will meet him in the air. He will receive us to himself. That means he doesn't come all the way to the earth. He receives us to himself. And then we go back to heaven. And while we're in heaven, there's some things that happen in heaven. And there's some things that happen here on earth. And can I tell you this? You don't want to be here when the things are, being hap- when the things are happening on earth. You want to be in heaven. Because in heaven, there's going to be a marriage supper of the Lamb. The church of Jesus Christ will become the bride of Jesus Christ. It will, it will come to its culmination. We will be married to Jesus for all of eternity. We'll spend it with Him. And at the end of that, marriage supper of the lamb and the judgment seat of christ all those things that must take place in heaven we will come back it won't matter to us how long it's been since we've been on the earth but we will come back and while we're in heaven there's going to be what we call a seven year period on the earth it's called a tribulation period it's prophesied in the book of revelation clearly written out for our benefit so that we can use that to encourage others not to want to be here during that time During that seven-year period, God is going to pour his wrath out on the church. You you want to hear, you want to talk about hell on earth? That's when it's going to be, hell on earth. And I'm not using that phrase lightly or, or disregarding the seriousness of it. But when God pours his wrath out on the earth, you do not want to be here. And praise God, those of us who know Jesus as our Savior today won't be here. We will come back. We will come back and we will reign with Jesus Christ for that 1,000-year period where all of the promises that were yet to be fulfilled to the nation of Israel will come to completion at that point in time. Jesus will literally reign from the throne of David. Some people, another errant theological view of the the reign of Christ, some people say that it's happening now, but it's happening in our hearts. Okay? No, no. Jesus didn't promise the the, the the land of Israel in their hearts. He literally promised a geographical piece of property to the people of Israel, and they've never owned that piece of property yet. So if God doesn't come back and fulfill that promise, then he really can't be God. You see, that's how serious this is. When we talk about eschatology, it's it's so significant. It not only affects uh, the future, but it affects the here and now. It affects what we believe about the church. It affects everything. So many things that we believe. We're going to study eschatology on Sunday nights as we continue our study in our church doctrinal statement. And, and it'll be a great time. We'll, we'll see and we'll begin to understand all these things that we're talking about in more detail. Jesus will reign. That will be his second coming where he literally comes to earth. And you know what? Some amazing things are going to happen when he comes to earth the second time. He's going he's to come down and his feet are going to land, literally touch on the Mount of Olives. And to my knowledge, the Mount of Olives is still one mountain over there in the Holy Lands. People go visit. That's a literal place. You can see it. But when he comes back, you know what's going to happen to that mountain? It's going to split. People who say Jesus came back, I, I have to ask why is the Mount of Olives still one mount if he's already come back? It should have split. Oh, it's just a spiritual thing. No, it's not. It's real. And, and every eye will see him. When he comes back, everybody's going to know it. It's not, it's not a secret. More people are going to know about it than knew about his first coming. Okay? It's real. It's going to happen. And this morning, as we think about this imminent return of Christ, the, the promise, the warning is for you and I to be ready for the rapture. To be ready when Jesus blows the trumpet and he comes and he descends in the clouds and he says, come home to be with me. When the father says, Jesus, today's your wedding day. Go and get your bride. What a, what a day that's going to be. Because you know what that means? That means 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 comes to reality. We will become like him because we will see him as he is. Hallelujah! We'll see him as he is and we'll become like him. But this morning we want to take just a little bit more time talking about this idea of the end. Peter says the end is near. The word end here is the Greek word teleos. Okay? And when it is used with a definite article like it is here, you notice it says there, the end is near. Okay, doesn't it doesn't just say an end," or uh, uh, it, it says the end." And when the Greek word has that definite article in there, um, it means an end or a goal, or the limit of a person ceases to be what it was up to that point. You know what? When Jesus comes back to take us home to be with him, who we are now at this point is going to cease. And we're going to become like him. We're going to be changed. Paul says so in 1 Corinthians 15. We'll be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. For the dead in Christ will rise first. And then those of us who are alive and remain shall be what? Caught up. And we'll forever be with him in, the, in heaven. Oh, man. Does that get your blood pumping? Does that make you excited? That we will forever... That's the end. That's the change. It simply means the goal is reached and the conclusion of the activity that went before it is now done. The church age is over. And we're in heaven with our Savior. Hallelujah. What a day that will be. Some wonder how this imminent or any moment return of Jesus Christ can help us be ready. Well, That's easy. We do not know when he's coming back, but we know he is coming back. So we want to live in such a way that when he comes back, he is pleased with how we are living when he calls us home to be with him forever. I think I've told you before that my mom, you know, I had two other brothers, both older than me, and we used to get up to mischief when my mom would go to ladies' missionary meeting or go to some other church event, or we knew that she was going to be away for an hour or two. Boy, I'll tell you what, we had fun. And I I think I've told you before that you could go through my mom's house, probably even today, and find milk glass. You know that stuff, milk glass? It's this white stuff. You can find that glued back together. Because of some of the things that we were up getting up to while she was gone. And you know what? We always had a lookout. Usually it was me. I had to watch for when my mom was coming back, when the car dropped her off from a church event. Hey, she's home. The car Mrs. Wallinger's car is here. We we need to get everything cleaned up. Amazing how quick you can clean things up, or at least think you can clean things up. She would walk in the door, and she probably knew, but she often acted like did you guys have fun while I was gone? You don't have a clue, Mom. We, we wanted to be ready when she came back. You guys know all about that, right? I mean, I... I can tell these stories because it doesn't have any repercussions on me now. I'm an old man. You guys, I understand you have to be quiet, and you can't tell about those things. But anyway, you, we understand that idea of an imminent return, and when, when the person comes back, you want to make sure everything is just the way it's supposed to be. You and I should be living just the way God wants us to live so that when he comes back, we're ready to meet him. We're not caught embarrassed doing something that we shouldn't be doing that he doesn't want us to be participating in. We want to be ready. And so the warning that Peter says here, be ready because he is coming back. We also see that there's an impact on our, of, of the warning. The impact is this. He says, therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. This is a reminder that we need to be serious in life because if we're not, Peter says, our prayers will be hindered. Our prayers may not be heard if we're not living uh, as God would have us to live life. Just what does it mean to be serious? Well, I think Strong's Dictionary sums it up pretty well. He says here, to be sane, to be in one's right mind, to be sober-minded, to think and act soberly and discreetly, and to use sound judgment and moderation. It means to be self-disciplined. That's what it means to be serious. Can I tell you something? When Jesus met that demoniac and he cast out the demons from his life and they all went over the, ran into the pigs and they went over the cliff, you know that story. It says there later on that the disciples came and found that demoniac sober minded, in his right mind. What made him in his right mind? He came face to face with Jesus. Jesus changed his life. When Jesus changes our life, it makes us, it allows us to be sober-minded, it allows us to be serious. Now, that doesn't mean we can't have any fun. We like to have fun. But it means that our focus must be on living for Christ, living the way Jesus wants us to live. If you and I heed this warning We will be looking for that any moment return of Jesus Christ. We will be living in a way that calls us to focus on using sound judgment in the things we say and the things we do. Our focus then tends to be more on Jesus than on other things. Peter asks us, he says, we need to be watchful in prayer. The idea here is akin to being serious or sober-minded in prayer. Peter wants us to be clear-minded without outside forces influencing our thought process. When we're clear-minded, we're able to be focused and we're ready to pray. Remember what Paul says over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5? He says, pray without ceasing. Peter's asking us to do the same thing, to be ready always to pray, to having our sins confessed, our life is in order, we're striving to please the one true God. We're in an attitude of prayer, ready and able to go to God at any moment. That's what Peter is calling for us in this warning here. As we move on to verses 8 and 9, we see that this warning has interpersonal significance Okay, We know the reason Jesus came to earth. He came to reconcile lost man to his father. His entire mission was for his creation, for the well-being and for the benefit of mankind, for you and for me. What a great God. Peter encourages the followers of Jesus to exercise great love for their brothers and sisters in Christ. He encourages us to practice These one another's. We've talked about these one another's before. In fact, there was a time when we had a whole list of them. Uh, And the one another's. Peter only mentions a few of them here. But when you and I are focused on the one another's of Scripture, you know what we're doing. We're looking out for the well-being of one another. We're looking out for each other. We're, We're striving to help and minister and serve one another. It's it's good for the family of God to be one another focused. And that's what Peter's telling us. He talks about the importance of love here in, this, in these two verses, 8 and 9. He mentions love twice in verse 8. He says it's the most important thing that you and I can do for each other. And above all things, he says, above all things, have fervent love for one another. Because love covers a multitude of sins. Now, the love here, it's an interesting kind of love. We might think that it's the the kind of love that we would call brotherly love, where we love one another uh, and and we just were friendly with one another, but that's not the kind of love that he commands us to here. He commands us to that kind of agape love. We see here there's an intensifier before the word love. You see that intensifier? It says have what kind of love? Fervent love fervent love. You know what that word means? It means stretched out or straining for something. As I was studying this word, I learned that this word fervent is related to the word in Philippians chapter 3 where Paul says, I'm reaching forward to the things of Christ. I press on toward the mark for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You know what Paul's doing He's straining. He's reaching with everything he's got. It's kind of like the picture of a guy who runs a relay race. You've seen them, right? And when they hand off the baton, the guy who is running, most of the pressure is on the guy who's, who's going to hand off the baton, not the recipient of the baton. Because the hander off of the baton, he's running in full stride. And the other guy, he's just kind of starting off. So that makes it a little difficult. But the goal is to, when you both are in full stride, to hand off that baton. And so the guy who's running with the baton in his hand, he's running. And as he he comes forward on this step, he's reaching. And he's straining. And he's trying to get out there with every little bit of effort that he has to put that baton in the other guy's hand so he can run without having a a dropped baton because that blows the race. Your race is done if you drop the baton. Peter wants us to understand we are to have that kind of love. In other words, we're to put everything we can into the love we have for one another, not leaving anything out, giving it all we got. Jesus gave it all he had when he loved us and still loves us. And he calls for us to love one another that way. Interesting, isn't it, that when we're straining to love one another, we are straining to become more like Jesus. He, he goes on to give us the benefit of that kind of love. Did you see the benefit there? It says, love will cover a multitude of sins. Now, what does that mean? Well, Peter's actually quoting from an Old Testament passage of Scripture. He's, he's quoting from Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12, and he says, Their hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. You see, as brothers and sisters in Christ, hatred or lack of love should not be part of our lives. Then there's this word cover. It means, well, first of all, let me tell you what it doesn't mean, okay? It doesn't mean that you ignore or you cover it up as if it never happened. That's not what it means when Peter says that love, or Solomon says that love covers a multitude of sins. In fact, Jameson Fawcett, James and Fawcett and Brown, uh, it, they wrote a commentary on the scriptures long time ago. And in his old English way, he makes this comment. He says, so as to not harshly to condemn or expose faults, but forbearingly to bear the other's burdens, forgiving and forgetting past offenses. When Peter says that love covers a multitude of sins, he's saying that when we love like Jesus loves, we choose not to remember the offenses committed against us. We've talked before about this idea of forgiveness, and and this really plays into that. It really helps explain it, because we know that God can't forgive our sins, right? Right? God can't forgive anything. That would be a lack of mental capacity, and our God lacks nothing. God forgives, and when he forgives, you know what that means? It means he chooses not to bring it up again. It's in the past, you've confessed it, and John says he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it's not there anymore. Now you see, if we were just living in the Old Testament where all we did was cover up sin, you could pull back that covering and guess what's still there? Your sin. But Jesus forgives us and he chooses never to bring up our sins again. That's why when we stand at the judgment seat of Christ, it won't be to give account for sins because those sins have been dealt with, forgiven, and never to be brought up again. But God leaves them in the past. And so Peter, what he's saying here, when he says when love covers a multitude of sins, he says you and I, when we're loving the way God wants us to live, we're not going to bring them up again. We're going to leave them where they are. We're going to leave them in the past. We're going to let them be, and we're going to choose not to dwell on them. You know how much stress and anguish and animosity comes because we bring up sins from the past? A lot. If we could just leave it there, our life and the lives of others would be so much better. This is a pretty amazing truth that we we need to incorporate into our lives. And it's easy to let feelings and opinions get in the way of this kind of love. That's probably why Peter uses the word strain, because it's not easy. You you have to put a lot into it. Um, and, And so as we think about those amazing thoughts... We want to remember that we are not to bring up the things that we say we've forgiven one another for in the past. So, not only do we look at this importance of love, but we also see imparting love. As a child of God, we are supposed to love others. Peter says that we're supposed to be hospitable. You see, most people, whether they're Christians or not, they tell you that love is the most important thing about Christianity. Have you heard that before? Well, and it is because God sent His Son because what does John three sixteen say? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Romans five eight. But God demonstrated His love toward us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Okay, so Christianity is about love, but can I say it's not love at all expense? We don't, we don't stop believing the truth or stop living the truth because we want to love somebody. God's love is totally balanced. It's balanced on what is best for mankind and what is consistent with his nature. And as we love, we must strive to do the same. We must strive to love for what is best for each other and strive to love in a way that is consistent with the nature of our great God. So when we have to judge sin, we have to call sin, sin. That's love. That's part of loving. When we have to practice church discipline, as much as we don't want to, and sometimes we have to, we don't do it out of spite or revenge or vindictiveness. We do it out of love with the goal of hoping to restore that relationship. Okay? So that's how we impart love. And Peter is a little more specific. He, says, he talks about be hospitable to one another. The gift of hosp- hospitality. Being hospitable is ex- was expected in Judaism. You know, if you were a Jew and another Jew came to your house, you were supposed to treat that person with love, whether you liked them or you didn't like them. You were supposed to love them, okay? That's also expected in Christianity. You and I need to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to put the past in the past, and we need to move forward. We need to love one another the way Jesus loved us. It's the gift of hospitality. It's something that we can't do outside of Christ, Unbelievers have such a hard time doing it they can't do it. But as Christians, we should model that in the world in which we live. Not only is there the hospitality that he talks about, but he says that we can do it happily. We do it happily. He says, without grumbling. In other words... I'm going to love you, but boy, I sure don't like it. I'm not happy about doing it. No, that's not the way we're supposed to love. We're to do it happily. We're to do it joyfully. We're to do it because we've been loved in that that kind of way. So we should love others in the same way. Well, we need to keep moving. Let's wrap it up with the importance of service in verses 10 through 11. It seems as though Peter is changing gears here a bit, but as we look at the context, we see that he's actually carrying on with the same warning. He wants us to understand that part of what keeps us moving in the right direction and even preparing for the return of our Savior Jesus Christ is that we serve Him. The serving of our great God and our Savior Jesus Christ is what prepares us for the return of our Savior. It's what helps us be ready for when he comes back. He delves into the importance of serving. And I'm not going to read these verses again because the clock keeps moving on us. But we see here in verses 10 and 11 the magnitude of ministry the importance, the magnitude, if you will, of ministry. Peter's reminding believers that we are to be people that serve and we serve at all times. Even when the circumstances of life are difficult, you know what we should be doing? We should be serving. You know what serving does in the difficult times of life when we're facing struggles and persecutions and hard times? If we're busy serving the Lord, you know what that does? It gets our minds off of ourselves and gets us focused on serving, gets us looking outward instead of looking inward at all of the struggles that we're facing with and that's important in the walk that we have as christians we don't want to be focused inward we don't want to be focused on the circumstances of life we want to be focused on serving our great god so even when the circumstances of life are hard or difficult we serve when the circumstances of life are easy you know what we do we serve We serve, whether it's easy or whether it's hard. God has called each one of us, every one of us sitting in this room, God has called us to serve Him. And God has equipped us in specific ways to serve wherever He has called us. When we serve where He has called us, we are being good stewards, as Peter calls it, in the things that He has gifted us with. I appreciate the word manifold here in our text. It indicates that each of God's children are different. And we use our differences to serve our great God and the the children of God in the body of Christ. Not one of us are the same. And we all say, whew, that's a good thing. God has made us all different. But he's made us different so all of the ministries that need to be cared for in the body of Christ are cared for. You see, when we serve in the body of Christ, we are demonstrating the, the grace of God and we are bringing glory to God and our service to Him. Is there something that God has impressed upon your heart in a way that you can serve? Then we ask you this question, can we help you make that happen? We've said this before and I don't know anybody specifically out of the ordinary has approached us and said, hey, I think God wants me to do this. How can, we do that as, how can we do that through our church? Now, we've had people who said, hey, you know what? it's time to start doing this ministry again. Yeah, okay, let's, let's, let's think about that, let's pray about it. And, and so we've done that. But nobody's really come and said, hey, Pastor, God has given me a burden to do this. And, and if we could do this, if we could figure out how to do this through our church, that would be amazing. Now, we might be able to do it, we might not be able to do it, but at least let's talk about it. And let's see, let's evaluate let's see what God has for us to do. You see, serving one another is key in preparing for the Lord's return. And it's key in growing in the local body of believers. So he moves on from talking about the magnitude of ministry to talk about the manner of ministry. This verse sounds a lot like what Paul wrote over in Colossians when he said, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You see, both Peter and Paul want us to understand that all ministry in the body is important. Whatever God has called you to do as far as ministry, it is important. Peter goes on to say, he says, if you are a speaker or a teacher or a preacher, speak as though you are speaking the words of God. You know why? Because you are. When I stand up here this morning, on any morning and any evening, or Ben stands up here or somebody else stands up here and preaches to you, we are not telling you what we think. We are declaring to you the word of God. We are making it in a way that hopefully is more understandable for you. We preach, we speak the word of God. I told you before, that's what the word homilageo means, homiletics, the the course that we take to learn how to preach. Homiletics, it comes from that same Greek word that means to agree with, to say the same thing as God says. So I'm not saying anything different than what God says in the pages of his book. And you see, that's the key. The pages of his book. You and I, we know the source of our preaching. When somebody comes to me after the sermon and, and they say, Pastor, that was a great message. You know what? You've probably heard me say this to you. Well, I have very good source material. I can't, can't go wrong if I stick with the source. If I remain true to God's word, I can never go wrong with what I preach. Now, if I come up with my own thoughts or my own ideas or my own feelings, then that's another story. And somebody should say to me, Hey, Pastor, I didn't quite see that in the text this morning. Can you help me figure that out? And I might come back and say, you know what? I kind of, I didn't intend to, at least I shouldn't. But maybe I I stretched that a little bit. And that's why it's important for us to have accountability to one another. But when we're sticking to the text, when we're sticking true to the word of God, we cannot go wrong. Because this is the inspired word of God. And, And Paul says that we are to rightly divide the word of truth. So as we think about the manner of ministry, we do it for the glory of God. We do it because God has called us to that ministry. Can you imagine if I got up one Sunday morning and I just didn't show up for church? I stayed across the road and I said, "Ah, I just, I didn't feel like preaching this morning. Nah, they'll survive without me. I might find out what without me is all about if I did that too many times. Now, there have been times, I think once, when I, actually my wife called Ben and and said, hey, pastor can't preach this morning because his mom needs to go to the hospital. And, and, And Ben stepped up. That wasn't a, I don't feel like doing it kind of a thing. When God calls us to ministry, that's what we're to do. We minister. We do what God has laid upon our heart to do, what God has impressed us to do. And he goes on, and he's not just talking about preaching and teaching and speaking. He says, if you're involved in other ministries, whatever it is that you are doing, he's very clear. If you're doing some other kind of ministry that's not speaking, can I tell you this? It's no less important. Ministry is ministry. We're doing it for God. We're doing it for God. There's not classification, this is the most important, this is the least important, and everything falls in between. It's not the way it works. Paul, Peter says, whatever you're doing, you do it for God's honor and for God's glory. Right there in verse 10, if you don't believe me, he says, or verse 11, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracle of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies. You know what? God has given you the strength the wisdom uh, the desire to do whatever it is he's called you to do in ministry so do it maybe it's serving a spaghetti dinner you know what this church made an impact on his community that night people were impressed because we had prayed about it we had thought about it it was well organized and it went off for the honor and the glory of God because everybody worked together that's a ministry We've got some other ideas that we want to do to minister to one another and minister in our community, but it's going to take all of us coming together to make it happen. We do it to the the glory of God because God has given us the ability. You know, sometimes I'll say either in our leadership team or to my wife, hey, I think think maybe we should do something like this. And my initial idea eh, might be good, might not be good. But you know what, after we start thinking about it as a team, or as we start thinking about it as a body, somebody says, hey, how about we do it maybe this way or that way, or or what what if we think about it this way? And as we start thinking about it, God has equipped people to do things far better in some areas than I can ever do. And the same is true about you. And that's why we work as a body. That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 says that every member must do its part. If you're the eye, be the eye. If you're the foot, be the foot. If you're the pinky toe, be the pinky toe. Whatever it is, be what God has called you to be. And, and remember that he's given you the ability to do that. Well, let's bring an end to the sermon this morning, okay? And let's, let's end it with the meaning of ministry. This is an important discussion. Why do we do the things we do? Peter makes it clear that we are doing it in preparation for the Lord's return. It's important that we serve God for his honor and for his glory. God is to get the glory for everything that you and I do. Why? Because he deserves it. This cross, this empty tomb. Enough said. Because the results of those... Mean eternal life for me, mean reconciliation for individuals to God's plan for their life. There's no other reason. Everything that we do should bring glory and honor to God because He deserves it. Anything that we do that will last for all of eternity is done because first He saved us, then He changed us, and now He motivates us to serve Him. And we can end by saying, To God be the glory. Not just in us, but through us as well. To God be the glory, great things he does. So would you consider with me this morning the warning from the Apostle Peter that we need to be busy living life the way God called us to live. That we need to be striving to become more like Jesus with each passing day. And that means that we will be loving others the way Jesus loved and serving in ways that God has called us to serve. It means putting others first and remaining faithful over the long haul. Faithful in the long run. And because of that, all glory, all honor, all praise goes to the one who has saved us and called us to himself. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for saving us. Thank you for calling us. Thank you for putting us into ministry. Help us to remember that all that we do for you, is ministry. Whether it's big in some people's eyes or small, help us to remember that all ministry is for your honor and for your glory. We must be faithful to what you have called us to do. We must do it and do it and do it, not out of drudgery, but because we love you and want to honor you with our life. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Mark's going to minister to us by leading us in our last song.